0: When the Woman Screams is a horror podcast that explores the cultural messaging behind why women scream in horror films. Content may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello and welcome to When the Woman Screams, a podcast where we break down horror films one scream at a time. In today's episode, we're deep diving into how female horror screams hag hagsploitation, connect with 1960s second wave American feminism. I'm your host Elizabeth Irwin and on this podcast we talk blood guts and spoilers so listener discretion is advised. <laughs> to age my voice hello. Hags cackle. <laughs> Ned, did you clip Ann Landers today? <laughs> Ann Landers is a boring old biddy. <gasps> Ned, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. <laughs> American popular culture has never been particularly kind to women over forty. Sometimes written as crotchety misanthropes, other times cast as eccentric comic relief, premenopausal women rarely fare well on screen. This is particularly true in horror, where the word hag conjures up some very specific images, usually involving a grotesque older woman attempting to suck the youth out of some unfortunate ingenue. Which brings us to today's topic, hagsploitation. Although this subgenre is known by other names, such as hag horror, Psycho Bitty Horror, and Grand Dame Guignon, these films all follow the same template. An aging woman, often financially independent, who ebbs between hysterical and batshit crazy, is either the victim of or the perpetrator of gaslighting. It often stars an aging movie actress who has not previously been known for horror films and who has a certain acting style that lends itself to campiness. These films also draw upon the history of exploitation cinema, in which films are specifically designed to be salacious in the hopes of piquing the interest of ticket buyers. Consider this trailer for the 1968 film The Killing of Sister George that makes absolutely no bones about what viewers should expect. How wonderfully cheerful you look buzzing around on your bike. Well, you'd look cheerful too with 50 cubic centimeters dropping away between your legs. Ah! No doubt. Not all girls are (laughs) raving, bloody lesbians, you know. That is a misfortune that I'm perfectly well aware of. George, you're impossible! The story of three consenting adults in the privacy of their own home. The killing of Sister George. But screen subgenres don't simply emerge. And the same is true for exploitation. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Robert Aldrich's ode to an aging movie star and her paraplegic sister, debuted in October 1962 and is typically considered the first official hagsploitation film. Four months later, Betty Friedan's groundbreaking book, The Feminine Mystique, was released. And I would argue that both of these events tap into a cultural mood that contributed to the second wave of American feminism. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy convened the President's Commission on the Status of Women, which looked at the ways legal inequality impacted women, particularly in the workplace. Kennedy also challenged status quo thinking that women's value to society was limited to the home front and to raising children. I see uh, thousands of women getting out of colleges every year, and uh, I wonder what happens to all these skills, and do they, uh, what contribution do they make? What chance do they have to uh, make full use of their powers? The Greeks defined happiness as full use of your powers along lines of excellence. And I wonder whether, in our society, women have the chance to use their powers, their full powers. I think we ought to look, uh, as a society, at what our women are doing and the opportunities before them. It was this same questioning of outside-the-home opportunities for women that led Ferdan to write about a sense of malaise she saw reflected in her life and the lives of her Smith College classmates when they discovered that, despite their stellar education, professional opportunities simply did not exist for them. A journalist who was fired after revealing she was pregnant with her second child, Ferdan set about interviewing her former classmates in anticipation of their 15th college reunion. These interviews revealed the quiet frustrations of women who traded in their professional ambitions to become housewives and mothers. Ultimately, these interviews would serve as the basis of Friedan's book. Solely in terms of her sexual relation to man, as a a man's sex object, as wife, mother, homemaker, and never in human terms as an individual person, as a human being herself. The Feminine Mystique would cast Ferdinand herself into the public spotlight as one of second-wave feminism's public faces. Like Ferdinand's book, Hagsploitation pushes back against thinking that simply frames women as wives and mothers. Critics suggest Hagsploitation is a cautionary tale of the madness that can befall a woman who is not grounded in home and family. But I contend that these films are actually subversive warnings of what happens when women don't support other women. So today we're thinking about what lurks beneath the screams of three quintessential hagsploitation films. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Straightjacket, and my personal favorite, Lady in a Cage. Our first film is considered the granddaddy of the subgenre and stars not one, but two former studio megastars. In one corner, Betty Davis, a two-time Academy Award winner whose demands for creative authority on film sets earned her a reputation for being difficult, which is basically misogynistic shorthand for Davis daring to have an opinion and voicing said opinion in the presence of men. In the other corner, Joan Crawford, also an Academy Award winner whose career spanned an impressive six decades. And although Crawford is now known more as the antagonist from her eldest daughter's memoir, Mommy Dearest, No wire hangers ever! It was Crawford's reputation as a demanding perfectionist that followed her onto the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So, with two legendary, albeit over the hill by Hollywood standards, actors on board, actors who, for the record, could not stand one another, the stage was set for the first official hagsploitation film. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is the story of a former child star, Jane, played by Davis, whose tentative grip on reality becomes increasingly obvious as she cares for her wheelchair-bound sister, Blanche, played by Crawford. In this scene, Jane serves Blanche a dead rat on a silver serving tray. Jane then cackles in glee at Blanche's screams of horror. Oh, Blanche, you know we got rats in the cellar? So I think it would be easy to dismiss what is happening in this scene as a simple stereotypical trope. The idea that interaction between two women will ultimately devolve into a catfight is so prevalent in our culture, particularly in the 1960s, that it has become a joke that has spanned the decades. But it's a joke that is grounded in patriarchal framings of women as too emotional and inherently jealous. But if we look closer at this scene, there is a really intriguing and subversive commentary fueling this scream. Yes, Blanche screams because she is mortified to find that she is being served a dead rat by her sister. But her scream is also one of anguish, frustration. Because Blanche is in a wheelchair and is dependent upon Jane for everything, her anger at not being able to be independent and have her own agency is building, The Scream here works as a pressure valve of sorts, and allows Blanche an opportunity to access her own rage. In the 1960s, people with disabilities were pretty much at the mercy of their caregivers. There was no Americans with Disabilities Act, disabled children still did not have the right to a public education, and the Center for Independent Living was just getting ready to open its doors. Also, in 1959, the poverty rate for the elderly in the United States was a staggering 46%. So for the elderly, an already disenfranchised group, being disabled was an additional layer of invisibility. While Jane and Blanche are both former stars, their precarious economic well-being is suggested repeatedly throughout the film. Blanche's scream is a guttural one, in which the reality of her situation— particularly her dependence upon her increasingly cruel caregiver, is a scathing critique of the suffering that is endured when there are no systematic safeguards to protect the needs of populations. Blanche's scream is especially interesting in this scene for how it works in concert with Jane's maniacal laughter. For much of the film, the audience is positioned to see Jane as the villain, But the film's shocking revelation that Blanche became disabled while trying to kill Jane reframes some of Blanche's motivations. Jane's mistaken belief that she is to blame for Blanche's suffering leads to Jane's mental deterioration. A deterioration that is only exacerbated by the demands of being a constant caregiver. While women today are still statistically the caregivers of family relatives, these numbers were even more pronounced in the 1960s, when women were still working primarily in the home. Jane's descent into madness can be read as a statement on the pressures we put on women to be primary caregivers, even when doing so is to their own detriment. Blanche's scream and its connection with Jane's laughter not only demonstrates cyclical abuse, but also demonstrates the complexity of emotions that cause women to scream in horror films. (laughs) Latent Rage is also at the heart of our second Scream collection from the movie Straightjacket. In this story, Lucy Harpin, also played by Joan Crawford, returns home from prison after being incarcerated for the brutal decapitation of her husband and his mistress, murders witnessed by her young daughter Carol. Lucy soon becomes the prime suspect in a rash of decapitation murders that coincide with her suburban return. A classic whodunit with not just murders, but awesome axe murders, this movie makes no bones about its Grand Guignol street cred. But it's the film's commitment to capturing the over-the-top reaction shots of its stars that gives it the shot of campy exploitation that really makes this movie a exploitation classic. The film opens with a scream bookended by news clippings of the murder. It then morphs into Lucy's screams as we see her commit the murders in the presence of her three-year-old daughter. And then, as she is confined to prison. Leave me alone! Leave me alone! Leave me alone, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty! I'm not guilty! I'm not! It was a mistake! Ah! Lucy's screams introduce the film, the audience is being given some important clues about Lucy, namely that she is mentally unstable and full of rage. The pleas that are littered between her screams also suggest a certain amount of fear as well, but don't do much to garner audience sympathy. Like the black and white news clippings that appear on screen, our understanding of Lucy's motivations are similarly uncomplicated. She's just the insane woman who beheaded two people with an ax while her young kid watched. To today's audiences, these scenes and that scream probably come across as campy excess. But to original audiences, the framing of Lucy and her crime are all too real. A closer look at pre-1960s politics and incarceration reveals the systemic invisibility of female prisoners. There's no data on the intersection of women, crime, and incarceration because none was kept. Those statistics are only available for male prisoners. It wasn't until feminism's second wave in the 1960s that demands for more data concerning female prisoners entered mainstream conversations. And it wasn't until 1980, yes, 1980, that data started being kept as part of regular operating procedures. With this history in mind, Straightjacket's opening scream reads a lot differently. Yes, the audience is still asked to look at Lucy as unstable, but we're also being given our first look at a system designed to silence women, particularly those labeled as difficult or threatening, a point underscored when the camera lingers on a newspaper clipping of Lucy in a literal straightjacket. Lucy's screams are, in effect, her last chance to vocalize her feelings before being subsumed by an institutional structure designed to quiet her and women like her. They are also a transgressive moment against the cultural attitude that grows more dismissive of the emotional lives of women as they grow older. The film's shocking revelation that Carol, not Lucy, is responsible for the recent rash of axe killings is a surprisingly ahead of its time understanding of intergenerational trauma and leads to another pivotal scream. In this scene, Carol's screams reveal her as the murderer and showcase the complexity of her feelings toward her mother. We'll have the money, we'll have everything. I planned this one from the beginning when I knew she was coming back. You planned? Of course. I knew your parents would object to the marriage, but we're rid of them now. Everyone will think that Lucy is the murderess. Don't you see? She's insane. She's insane. She's insane. She's insane. She's insane. insane. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Please, no, I didn't mean to hurt you. Please, I love you. I hate you. God damn it, I I hate you. I hate you. Insane! Insane! All I get is insane! <laughs> <laughs> Echoing her mother from the beginning of the film, Carol's screams are a complicated hybrid of anger, madness, and grief that helped to frame a popular convention within exploitation films, gaslighting. Basically, to gaslight someone is to make them question their own sanity. This is clearly something we realize Carol has been doing to Lucy throughout the entire film. But while the archetype of a younger woman gaslighting an older woman is certainly not exclusive to the horror genre, it does take on added resonance when paired with horror films' more transgressive qualities. It also advances a specifically conservative ideology that women have more to fear from other women than they do men. But in Straightjacket, Carol's desire to gaslight Lucy is more a byproduct of a traumatized mind than it is a calculated decision for personal gain. When the film was released in 1964, the general public was only just starting to understand the long-term impacts of experiencing trauma. And while the end of the decade and the early 1970s would see interest in how trauma, particularly divorce and parental separation, impacted children, the research was far from conclusive. Carol's screams and their vacillation between adult anger and childish desperation lay the blame for Carol's murder spree at the feet of her mother, a blame Lucy seemingly takes when she announces her decision to spend the rest of her days trying to help Carol. As a child, Carol lacked a voice in what was happening to her family, but her screams reclaim that agency, even as they cast her as deranged. Our final film offers up an assortment of screams that tie together issues of privilege, wealth, and crime with the cultural invisibility of women over 40. Lady in a Cage is one of those classic films that straddles the line between horror and thriller and is the hagsploitation film probably least well-known on our list. Like our previous films, it is the casting here that bumps this film squarely into legendary exploitation territory. A two-time Academy Award winner who once sued Warner Brothers, Olivia de Havilland made a name for herself by being her own fiercest advocate. And her performance in this film, especially her reaction shots, are nothing short of legendary. In the film, Mrs. Hilliard, played by de Havilland, becomes trapped in an elevator she has had installed in her home to assist in her recovery of a broken hip. There, she is tormented and assaulted by derelicts who are attracted to her home by her very calls for help. In our first scream, Mrs. Hilliard has already been put through it. She has finally managed to drag her body outside where she yells for help. Although her cries are ignored by passerbys, including the police, they do attract the attention of her abusers. Please. 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 Wow. almost nearly got away. Almost nearly. (laughs) Help! Help! Damn you! Damn you! (laughs) What's fascinating about this scream sequence is that the words please and police are blurred together so that neither plea is truly distinguishable. Despite growing evidence that Mrs. Hilliard is going to have to save herself, she still clings to the idea that some entity and authority will save her. But everyone, from the police to her neighbors to random people walking by, are so focused on themselves that they literally fail to see a woman crawling on the sidewalk and screaming for help. In his book, Grand Dame Guignol Cinema, Peter Shelley calls this film, quote, a disturbing indictment of the amorality of 1964 American society, end quote. It was a decade marked but with upheaval, and Mrs. Hilliard's scream here is both a reflection of the dominant culture paradigm and a challenge to it. As someone with clear financial means, Mrs. Hilliard embodies a financial privilege that removes her from the other characters in the film. She believes that if people can't be reasoned with, at least they can be bought. But this financial privilege also puts her at risk and makes her a target. This threat is further exacerbated by her other markers she believes her wealth cancels out. She's single and alone, she's disabled, she's older, and she's a woman. Having been put through the wringer by the criminals, Mrs. Hilliard's scream is one of desperation, fueled by an awareness that no amount of money is going to save her. Alone on a sidewalk, she's just another woman in crisis. And as this film suggests, women in crisis are largely invisible. The fact that a film making this argument was released in 1964 is not a coincidence, That same year, the Civil Rights Act broke new ground for the protection of marginalized classes, but it also failed to include women as one of those protected classes. Women's groups were quick to decry the omission with the argument that without legal protections, women are not safe. Mrs. Hilliard's screams seem to suggest that even with those protections, women, particularly older, non-able-bodied women, are still at risk. Interestingly, the climaxing scream of the film comes not from Mrs. Hilliard, but from an unnamed character who screams in shock when Randall, blinded after having his eyes gouged out by Mrs. Hilliard, is brutally run down by cars as he stumbles into the street. A traditional scream of shock and repulsion at seeing a man's head crushed like a melon by a car tire, this moment effectively shocks the entire community and forces them to look at the spectacle that has been right in front of them all along. That it takes the scream of a young, able-bodied white woman in the company of a man to shock people out of their complacency is telling. And provides an effective contrast to our final scream, in which Mrs. Hilliard is rescued but still screams in an effort to be heard. The murmurs of the crowd that overtake Mrs. Hilliard's voice suggest that even though she was rescued from this threat, she is still vulnerable because no one is really listening to her. Though reacting to different aspects of cultural marginalization, all of these screams possess a desire to regain a voice against a culture designed to silence them. exploitation films are not just campy vehicles for aging movie actresses looking to turn a buck. There are also pointed cultural critiques on how 1960s American culture rendered women over 40 invisible. The screams we've considered today echo second-wave feminism concerns over aging, caretaking roles, threats of physical violence, income insecurity, and incarceration. These films also reflect a major blind spot second-wave feminism was criticized as having. They're exclusively about white women. By not offering stories that also incorporate the voices of women of color, these Grand Dame Guignon films contribute to the centering of white voices within second-wave feminism activism. This wraps up our look at 1960s exploitation screams. If you're interested in reading more about this topic, I recommend Elder Horror, Essays on Films Frightening Images of Aging, edited by Cynthia J. Miller and Bodine Von Ripper, Grand Dame Guignol Cinema, A History of Hag Horror, From Baby Jane to Mother by Peter Shelley, Attack of the Leading Ladies, Gender, Sexuality, and Spectatorship in Classic Horror Cinema by Rona Berenstein. and The Monster Show, A Cultural History of Horror by David J. Scowl. If you have any comments, gripes, or observations about this episode, you can find me at When the Woman Screams website, link in the description. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the screams of women who have outlived their children, and we're thinking through what they have to tell us about representations of maternal grief. I hope you'll scream with me.